ask you to join me in Luke 21, Luke the 21st chapter. This is not a part of our Gospel of Luke series, but it is where we are for this evening as we seek to answer an important question that is often a part of life. And as we begin, I want to share a video with you here in just a moment. I believe it'll play. It played on my computer fine, so I think you'll be able to see it on the screen. But it's an interview that took place in late January of 2015. It aired on the Ireland National Public Service Media. They did a a series on Sundays. I, I think it was simply entitled Sunday Conversations. And on this particular Sunday in 2015, they interviewed a man by the name of Stephen Fry. I don't know if you are familiar with that name. He is a well-known, avowed atheist. And in this interview, the interviewer asks him, let's suppose it's all true, that God is real, and someday in the future, you step up to the pearly gates and you meet God face to face. What would you say to him? This video is a little over two minutes, but it includes that portion of the interview, and I want you to see it tonight as it will introduce us to the theme of the message. Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true. longest 
answer to that question that I ever got in this entire series. That's kind of difficult to listen to, isn't it? But the reality is, his response is very combative. But the question of evil or suffering is one that has been asked by unbelievers and believers alike throughout history. He, he puts it very, we would say, blasphemously, right? I mean, to have the audacity to question God, how dare you, to call him a maniac, to call him mean and capricious. But the reason he thinks the way he does is because of this question that came out in his examples, right? Why suffering? Why evil? The question usually comes in these forms. How could a good God allow that? Why do bad things happen to good people? If there is a God, why didn't he keep that from happening? But some may even ask it this way. Where is God? Where, where is he? What, what kind of God is he? And so your Bibles are open to the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. I've preached a thought similar to this in the past, and I think from time to time it is good for us to revisit this thought because it is something that we deal with, just like someone like him who may be lost and in denial of the existence of a God. When the world experiences evil, whether it's natural or moral evil, this question resonates in the minds and hearts of people. For the sake of understanding, let's briefly define two terms that I just used. Natural evil, moral evil. What are we talking about? Natural evil describes tragic calamities within the realm of nature that are not directly caused by mankind or activity of mankind. So we think of earthquakes, we think of hurricanes, tornadoes. These type of natural events that happen over the course of human history that, that cost life and property... These are described as natural evil. Then we have moral evil. Moral evil are tragic occurrences that are directly caused by the depravity of man, such as acts motivated by hatred, greed, covetousness, selfishness, and the like. When one man acts out his depravity toward another or toward a group of people. There are, there are examples we like to use throughout history. I've been questioned even in the last year, why would God, if he's the kind of God you say he is, allow Adolf Hitler to kill millions of people instead of putting a stop to it? Questions like this. Whether we're talking about natural or moral evils, people want to know about God's involvement. 
do these events prove that there is no God? And if there is a God, what kind of a God would cause or even just simply allow these evils to happen, whether we're talking about natural or moral evils, where is God? And even believers, those of us who know and follow Jesus, may question God during times of personal loss. When we get a bad report from the doctor, when we suffer through some personal tragedy, when we experience a family breakup or blow up, when we lose a job, when we experience a tragic loss or death, these types of events can, can cause us to ask questions. And it is a deep question. One that we can't treat in depth in one message. But I believe as we look at Luke 21 for these moments tonight we'll have a foundation built on God's word that can encourage us as believers as well as challenge unbelievers in our outlook when we experience evil or suffering. So look with me at Luke 21. And I want you to follow along as we read verses 25 to 28. The Bible declares Jesus is speaking and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. These verses are just a portion of what we call Jesus' Olivet Discourse. This discourse was given to his disciples after they, they showed Jesus. Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings of the temple... And Jesus told them, there's coming a day where not one stone will be left upon another. And they said, when is this going to happen? Tell us about the end time. Tell us about what is going to take place before these things come to pass. And Jesus goes into this Olivet Discourse. These are signs of his coming in the end of the world. Now... Again, we need to define terms and events. When we, when we speak of the Lord's return, sometimes in our minds we conjure up the event that the Bible calls the rapture, right? We, when we speak of, hey, the Lord's coming back for us, we, we're thinking about the rapture when the saved, dead and alive, will be caught up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Strictly speaking, you do understand that that event, Jesus doesn't return to earth. The Bible speaks of him coming in the clouds, but we're going to go up to meet him in the air. 
the second coming of Christ is a distinct event from the rapture that takes place at the end of the tribulation period. Rapture, seven-year tribulation period, the return of Christ at the end of that period when he'll set up his millennial kingdom on earth. Some believers speculate that when Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse, he's talking about events leading up to the time of the rapture. While others say, no, these events fit better with what will take place before his return at the end of the tribulation. You say, well, which is it? Is it the rapture or is it the second coming of Christ? Yes. You say, Pastor, how can you say that? Well, because as we're drawing closer, both those events are in front of us, right? So those signs will be taking place leading up to the rapture and the second coming. If this passage refers to the second coming, you say, Pastor, what's your belief? My belief is it, it does fit better with the second coming of Christ, but that's neither here nor there. We won't have a church split over that or anything, okay? But that's my thought. But regardless, both events are still in front of us. And the applications that we would draw, regardless of the event that he's describing, would be the same. And so look with me again at verse 25. Jesus says here, There shall be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Jesus says that due to signs in nature there would be distress among nations among the people of the world what what is this word distress it's the word anxiety people are going to see what is going on in nature natural phenomena that are taking place and it's going to cause anxiety it's going to cause worry concern fear jesus says that there would be perplexity this word's an interesting word that has the idea of uncertainty about how to deal with difficult situations. In fact, this word is often used at times to describe one who has lost his way. Does, does it ever seem like the world has lost its way? That's what this word means. As they see these signs going on, they're going to be worried, they're going to be anxious, and they're not going to know what to do. In response, they're not going to know how to, how to act, how to react in the midst of these situations that are going on. And that leads to verse 26 where Jesus says that men's hearts will fail or faint because of fear. Not only fear of what they see happening around them right now, but fear of what's coming in the future. If these things are happening now, what's the future hold for us? Regardless of whether it's natural evil or moral evil that we face, situations like these often lead to the same type response. Distress, anxiety, worry, perplexity. What do I do in this situation? How do I move forward in fear? But how should we respond? Even now, when we face those types of situations, as we look at this text, Jesus helps us, I think, 
even as he speaks about what's coming with three actions we can take in response to that question. How should we respond in the face of these things? Number one, I want you to think of this. We should remember who God is. Remember who God is. Look with me if you would. We're going to look at several scriptures. Look with me at Isaiah 45, 6 and 7. Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7. There the prophet Isaiah, writing about our God, says these words, that they may know, the people of the world, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. And then listen to what God says about himself in verse number 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. We, we struggle with that thought, don't we? I form the light. We're good with that. But he also says, I create darkness. I make peace. That's fine. I've got that. But then God says, I create evil. And this is a perplexing paradox that we struggle with. We struggle to come to grips with. But before we get lost, I want you to understand that God is presenting contrasting ideas. Light and darkness are opposites. And in this passage, he presents peace and evil as opposites. What God is saying here in a simple form is that he presides over, he, he is sovereign over, he works providentially over peace and those things that make for peace just as he presides over evil and those things that make for evil and in this context evil is not talking about the the moral sense of evil here the word literally has the idea of calamity we could say then god is speaking here of natural evil he's giving us the impression that he directs he purposes he works in all events We might say it this way in our Christian vernacular. The God of the mountain is still God in the valley. You understand that whether you're on the mountaintop or in the valley, God is still God. God is still on the throne. He's still in charge, ruling and reigning, accomplishing his work. He's God in the good times and in the bads. It's not as if when the bad times come, when we experience evil and suffering, that God has slipped off his throne, that he's lost sight of what's going on, that he somehow is disconnected. Psalm 22, verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, surely as I have so shall it come to pass, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God's counsel, God's purposes are going to come to pass, going to stand. 
but we struggle with it. Why do we struggle with it? Because we're finite people trying to wrap our heads around an infinite God. Right? Because we are not all-knowing people trying to wrap our minds around an all-knowing God. Have you ever experienced this, those of you who are parents? I know I have with my children. There are times where you tell your children to do something. Or perhaps you even put your children through something. For my young children, it may simply be something as simple as going to the doctor, going to the dentist. And my children want to tell me, I hate going to the doctor. I hate going to the dentist. And as a parent, I may something, say something like this, well, I know you don't understand why it's necessary, but it is necessary and it is for your good. Moms, dads, right? You've been there, haven't you? God is, if you know Christ is your Savior, God is your Heavenly Father. Why should we think that there will be times we won't experience something similar? What I'm trying to tell you is this. We always want an answer. Interacted with someone who went through something very tragic this past week and talked about hoping to someday understand. And someone else who was there said, yes, someday you will understand. I believe that. I know someday you'll understand. You know what the truth is? You may not. You may never understand why you experienced something tragic. The reality is that we cannot always give an answer for God and why God does why, what God does. And that is okay. It's fine. If I could answer for God, for everything that God does, number one, that'd be a pretty arrogant position for me to claim. And number two, I'd be claiming to know all that God knows. And I can't do that. Doesn't the Bible tell us over and over and over again that God's wisdom, the riches of the depths of his knowledge and understanding is beyond us? Isaiah chapter 55, I have it a little later in my notes, but God says what? My ways aren't your ways. My thoughts aren't your thoughts. And that's going to be true. I think the biblical example of Job is so helpful. Remember, the entire book of Job is about a difficulty Job faced, suffering, evil that Job faced. And we struggle even with Job chapter 1, right? The sons of God appear before God to, to account to him, and among them is Satan. And Satan says, hey, hey, God, here I am. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. He eschews evil. He worships me. And Satan says, well, God, you know why he does that, don't you? He does that just because you've blessed him, so take away your blessing and Job won't worship you that way. And God gives Satan space to operate in Job's life. And we struggle with that. Job came to struggle with it, didn't he? Chapter after chapter, his friends are telling him, Job, admit it, it's because of the sin or wickedness in your life. And there really wasn't a direct cause, sin and wickedness in Job's life. 
And finally, Job comes to the place in about chapter 35 or 6 of, of the book of Job. And Job finally looks up to heaven. He curses the day he was born. He, he essentially wishes to die. And he questions God and essentially demands that God show him the reason for all of this. And how does God respond? For about two or three chapters, God questions Job. Where were you when I created the world? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Hey, hey have you ever looked at the Leviathan? And Have you ever looked at the behemoth and thought about how miraculous and how complex these creatures are? These two creatures. And the world replicates that multiple times over. And God says, and yet you want to question me about this that's going on in your life. And we get to the end of the book of Job, and you know what's true? Job never knows why. Right? I mean, you get to the end of all that, and, and Job falls on his face before God and worships God again, and and essentially tells God, I'm sorry that I questioned you, and never has an answer for why he experienced what he experienced. You and I know more about it than he did because of the word of God. My point is simply this, that God tells us that we're going to experience these things. And God tells us there's going to be natural evil in the world there's going to be moral evil in the world and yes we could say of course all of this is the result of sin apart from sin none of these things happen but while god doesn't tell us why we may go through all of those things or why he acts a certain way or doesn't act a certain way he does tell us how we can respond to these things let me give you just one example. Psalm 21, 1 and 2. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. So when you face tragedy, whether it's in the world or in your own life, remember who God is. We may not be able to answer all the questions that we have, but we can remember that he tells us we can trust him, we can depend on him through those things. Number two, not only remember who God is, but recognize, or, or I might say reflect on the truth that Jesus is coming again. Look back at verse 27 of Luke 21. Luke 21, verse 27 the Bible tells us here of Jesus speaking, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. As Jesus speaks of these signs, he told his disciples that these signs would point to his return and the redemption of the believer. And so he says, yes, there are going to be these signs. And what he's saying is that the evil, the calamity, will multiply. It's going to get worse and worse and worse, but that is going to be a sign that my coming is drawing nearer and nearer. Look at a parallel passage in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, 
here's what Paul says in verse 22. He's speaking to the believer. He's talking about the adoption, the opportunity we have to come to the Lord in prayer. The Spirit helps us in our infirmities, knowing perfectly the mind of the Father. And then he says this in Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Notice that phrase, the creation groaneth and travaileth in pain. What's he talking about? The language that Paul uses is pictured by a woman who is in labor. What, what is true of a woman as she goes into labor and approaches closer and closer to the time of the child being delivered. God created a woman's body to have what we commonly call contractions, right? And what happens as a woman progresses in labor closer and closer to the delivery of that baby? The contractions increase in both time... Not length of time between, but shortness of time between, and also increase in intensity. I've been in the delivery room many times at this point, and I know, uh, not by personal experience in that sense, but I know from what I see and experience that that happens. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. As it draws closer to that time, it is as if the very world itself, creation, is contracting. It's increasing in the space of time, the shortness of time, and in intensity, all working up toward what? What, what is this all about? It, it is about these signs that Jesus spoke of in Luke 21, the Bible speaks of in other places, and it's working up to, don't miss this, I, I think it's, it's fascinating. It's working up to the delivery, to deliverance. Notice Paul speaks of that in Romans 8 verse 23. And not only they, the whole of creation is groaning and travailing in pain is having these labor contractions, if you will, that are increasing the, the shortness of time between, the increase in intensity, these signs like Jesus spoke about, not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. So those contractions, they, they get shorter between, they increase in intensity, all working up to the point of delivery. In the same way, creation is growing, and we who know Jesus Christ, isn't it true? I, I've seen this, I, I've heard it over and over again from people as they age. As you age more and more, isn't it true that earth becomes a little more bitter and heaven becomes a little more sweet, right? And the same is true just in history. As we go on in time, earth is becoming more and more bitter. 
earth is becoming more dark, is expressing its brokenness more and more. Heaven's becoming a little sweeter. We're working toward that time of deliverance. So you and I look around and we see evil. Natural evil that seems to be getting worse and worse. Moral evil that seems to be getting worse and worse. What is that? Those contractions. They're getting shorter in time between. They're growing in intensity. But for a woman in labor, that's actually a positive thing, isn't it? It's a good sign. The delivery is closer. Do you know Jesus wants us to see it the same way? What's he tell his disciples in verse 27? They shall see the Son of Man coming. He says in in verse number 28, Your redemption draweth nigh. That point of deliverance is getting closer. And you may say, well, pastor, I thought we're already redeemed. Yes and no. You're saved from the penalty of sin. You'll never experience condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. You're being saved from the power of sin. We call that sanctification as the Holy Spirit of God that lives within you sets you apart more and more from the world and sin and wickedness unto Christ. You're becoming more like Christ. But being saved from the presence of sin is yet future. We all still live with brokenness. We all still live with sin in our hearts, in our flesh. There's coming a day when that will all be done. We call that glorification. And it's that redemption that Romans 8, 23 talks about. It's that redemption that Jesus talks about here in Luke 21. And so Romans 13, 11 says it this way, and that knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Why? For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. We're getting closer and closer to that point of glorification. And so when, when we face these things, remember who God is, recognize or reflect on the truth that Jesus is coming again. And then thirdly, very simply and practically, reflect God's love to others. How how does God want you and I to respond to a world around us? To our brothers and sisters in Christ when tragedy occurs? Through reflecting his love. Think about Jesus. How do you think Jesus himself would respond to a community that is hurting when it's experienced a community-wide tragedy? How do you think Jesus would respond to a person or a family in despair following a tragedy? What you're thinking and I hope you're thinking biblically, should be the way that you and I respond. 
in those situations. Think about our Jesus. <clears throat> our Jesus ate with publicans and sinners because he were, knew they were in need of a physician. Our Jesus went out of his way to minister to the needs of those who were the castaways of religious society. Our Jesus when he saw a city rejecting him, wept and sympathized that they had not come, that he might offer them all that he could and wanted to. Our Jesus stood up to the religious crowd in the temple courtyard when they brought an adulteress to him and said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast the stone. So think about it. If Jesus were physically on the earth, do you think he would go to the scenes of tragedies and, and picket that this is God's judgment coming to pass? Or would our Jesus roll up his sleeves and seek to minister to those who were hurting? It's a loaded question, I understand. But I think if we were honest, we would say, in those types of situations, having opportunity and the means, Jesus would seek to reach out to those in need, to show love, to show compassion, to show mercy. And isn't that exactly what he did to a world broken in sin? And depravity. You know, as I think back to the video we watched at the beginning, I think Stephen Fry completely misses the point. He said something about this mean, capricious God who allows and even causes all these horrible things, demands that we get on our knees every day thanking him. That completely misses the point because God doesn't require that the God that I know said actually you're broken you're you're wicked you're you're hurt by sin but I love you so much that I'm going to fix the problem I'm going to offer healing through his son Jesus that's exactly why he sent Jesus, isn't it? He didn't send Jesus to the world because the world deserved him. He didn't send Jesus into the world so Jesus could come and preach condemnation. He didn't send Jesus into the world to show, hey, here's how you live a perfect life. Now, snap in the line and get with it. No. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. And so we might ask the question or be asked the question at times, where is God? And the answer is, God is where he always has been. He's on the throne. He's working in all and through all to accomplish his purposes. Do I understand it all? No. Will I ever? No. 
how should we respond? Remember who he is. Recognize, reflect on the truth that Jesus is coming again. And then, when you have the opportunity and means, reflect God's love to others.